The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming out 9.30 on Sunday. In an academic conference, if you get this slot, it means they don't like you much. <laughs> but as a social, at a socialism conference, you know it's going to be packed because people are that serious about stuff. So, you know, we have a very small and narrow topic today. <laughs> Marxism, colonialism, and revolution. But actually, you can, uh, you know, I can give you a very quick way to talk about, you know, think about my whole talk. So one of the first Indian words that comes into the English language is the word loot. It's from the Hindustani word lootna, which means to steal, to rob, to plunder. And why shouldn't that be one of the first words, right? Because that's what they did. They stole, they robbed, they plunder. You think they went to India because it was a poor country? No, it was a rich country. It was poor after they got there, right? That's what they did it. So the first part of the talk about colonialism is about looting. And the anti-colonialism part is about getting that loot back. <laughs> what you took from us, we're gonna take it back. That's the talk. All right? Now, the person that I was hanging out with at four in the morning, you know, I, we, can, we can all go set, take some rest. Okay. <clears throat> so I have two, two bigger goals in this talk, actually. So the first is how Marxism gives a framework for thinking about colonialism in relationship to capitalism. So for us as Marxists, settler colonialism, transatlantic slavery, chattel slavery, the colonization of Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, these are all parts of the same process. The emergence of capitalism and the continuation and spread of capitalism such that it saturates the entire globe. Well, that's one part of, that I want to convey in the talk. The second goal is Marx's framework for anti-colonialism and how does it relate to socialist revolution. We are for anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, anti-racist struggle in any epoch. We are for it even though we are internationalists and those often take the form of nationalism. But we never confuse a national liberation struggle for socialist revolution. We never confuse a one-party state that calls itself socialist but actually oppresses its people and say that's socialist revolution. That's not what socialist revolution is, even if they fought colonialism in the past. But those are the two big ideas I want to convey in today's talk. And in the process, while my focus will be on a European Marxism, really, I want to bring in anti-colonial voices, because I think a lot of those anti-colonial voices actually dovetail very nicely with Marxist frameworks, even if they're not Marxist, right? So I want to bring those in. But first, let me talk about the stakes and why this talk matters. Because the world as we know it today, in the last 550 years, has been shaped by these processes that we're talking about. Why is there global inequality? Why is it so high? Why are they rich, rich countries and poor countries? Because of colonialism. Why are people of color in imperialist countries struggling so hard to make it? What is the legacy? of that migration, of that minority status. That's colonialism and slavery. Why are there these ideas about the West and the non-West? 
the West as democratic, modern, even feminist, progressive, queer-friendly, and the East as backward, traditional, sexist, dictatorial, anti-feminist, etc. Why are those ideas there? Because of colonialism. The hidden fact is that the colonial regimes actually helped produce, solidify, and make concrete that idea of tradition. They worked hand in fist with traditional leaders, like with caste in India. Their colonial law actually solidified things that might have been oppressive and backward, but were still more fluid before the colonizers came. That's all the impact of colonialism. One reason why we have to talk about this is because we no longer have an anti-war movement in this country. It's a shame. We're in the belly of the beast. Our international solidarity depends on our ability to fight imperialism. Mm -hmm. But we've lost that, right? And we need to bring that back and have clarity on it. But we have to do all this in the middle of a time where racist ideas of all kinds are emerging everywhere we look. Even we have to fight for the basic ideas like Black Lives Matter. We have to fight for the basic ideas that children shouldn't be ripped away from their parents and put in cages because their parents crossed the border. And in academia, we have to fight articles like the case for colonialism. This thing that came out last year that says Western colonialism was good, and in fact, we need recolonization by the West. And when we attack it, we're talked about being against free speech. That's the environment we're in, and that's why we have to take this on. All right, so let's, let's move ahead. So let's talk about Marx, first of all. So what I want to do, first of all, is give you some key frameworks from Marx's theory that I think are important for colonialism and anti-colonialism and the relationship to cap capitalism. So first, let's talk about Marx. And when we talk about Marx, we have to talk about that question that always comes, was Marx Eurocentric? Is Marxism Eurocentric? And that's really based, when it's a serious question, <laughs> right? It's based on two things. One is, if Marxism is so focused on the history of capital, and if capital originated in Northwestern Europe, then isn't it going to be inevitably Eurocentric? Because it's going to focus on what happens through Europe. You see what I mean? And the second version is, if Marxism sees the working class as the revolutionary force, isn't that always going to lead Marxism to talk about the most industrialized places where the working class is largest and to ignore peasant revolution, to ignore the revolts of the oppressed? So when it's a serious question, those are the two elements that come out of it. And when we look at Marx's writings, we have to say that at times there is a Eurocentric tendency that comes. But at other times he corrects that and he fights that and he comes up with a different way of examining the question. It develops further in Trotsky and Lenin and others, but I'm going to stick with Marx for a minute. So I can't go into full discussion, but in some of my work, uh, in a recent Socialist Worker article as well, I talked about Marx's writings on India. And in the first parts of the writings, he talks in that way of the modes of production as moving kind of smoothly from one to the other in a very linear way, and as capital, British capitalism being a revolutionary force in India. And he repeats that old idea of the Asiatic mode of production 
that India was a stagnant society ruled by oriental despotism. It couldn't really have any dynamics of its own. And no matter how brutal it was, British colonialism came and sort of sparked it out of its sort of Asiatic, you know, slumber or something, right? Now, these things are wrong on any number of accounts. They're factually incorrect. Right? Asia was a much more dynamic place. It had class society, it had its own struggles. But also, even while Marx condemns British capitalism, he's always a critic of British capitalism, there's no Indian agency. They're just passively sitting there. It's not even dialectical. It's not what I would recognize as Marxism, frankly. But when the revolt of 1857 opens up, then you see Marx in motion. And all of a sudden, the Indians who revolt he sides with them completely. So the racist British press is saying, look at the atrocities of, of, of these you know, folks who revolt, a very violent and bloody revolt. And he says, this is but a concentrated form of years of British colonialism and torture and taxation. Right? When the revolt emerges, all of a sudden he says things like, these atrocities will continue until either the English proletariat overthrows the, the, the capitalists or the Hindus overthrow the yoke. So all of a sudden, you're not in that linear mode of production model any, anymore, right? The, ant, the, the colonized could also become agents of their own change. And that's the Marx we know, because the Marx we know says not only does capitalism march through, but it creates its own grave diggers, the proletariat. And when Marx talks about the Indian army of the East India Company, he says they unwittingly created the force that could actually challenge them. Right? And so we have a dynamic back. And all the language about Asiatic motor production in those later articles disappears. But when Edward Said writes about Marx and calls him an Orientalist, the great Edward Said, the great Edward Said that we respect, when he talks about Marx as an Orientalist, he never talks about the post-1857 articles. He only talks about the 1853 articles. And that's something to investigate and to challenge. But when Marx moves to more familiar ground, like with Ireland, then he becomes fantastic in 1869. And he says, I'm not giving you a direct quote, but he says basically, I used to think that only an English revolution would get rid of Irish colonialism. Now I know that the English working class won't take a single step forward until it renounces you know, this idea of Ireland as a colony, right? So now all of a sudden it becomes about the workers of England um, and, and, the, and the nation of Ireland, right? This is not economic reductionism. The nation of Ireland's freedom and the fight of English workers is actually tied together, right? Now, the, the concept that in terms of understanding colonialism that Marx gives us um, in capital, is, that's very profound, is the idea of what's often called primitive accumulation I'm going to call it originary accumulation, as many do. Um, you know, that word primitive. <clears throat> so, so in Capital, Marx gives us a map and a framework that might be, that this quote might be familiar to people in this audience, but it's actually not familiar out there to very esteemed scholars. Um, and, and, and it's not even thought about. So the, the quote from Capital is like this. The discovery of gold and silver in America the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of India, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, all of these signaled the rosy dawn, right, the irony, 
of the, of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief moments of primitive accumulation, right? And so in other words, the forces that make capitalism capitalism depended on this extreme violence of colonialism and slavery. And he very carefully talks about settler colonialism, colonialism in Asia, and the transatlantic slave trade. Right? And, so, and so this map that he gives, this sketch, is something that scholars have developed further you know, to really investigate how this works. But this is important because now capitalism is a revolutionary force, but revolutionary in what way? It completely transforms things, but not in any progressive way. It's violent. In this chapter, he goes along and says, capital comes dripping from head to toe with blood and dirt, right? Now here he's talking about both what happens to the peasants in the English countryside and what happens to the colonized and the enslaved. So unlike you know, the Brenner thesis and these kind of things, capitalism in, in England is not just about what happens internally. It's about what happens in, on a global scale, right? So this is absolutely important for an internationalist position and for um, understanding, um, understanding the centrality of, there's no history of capitalism that's not a history of colonialism. Right, these two things are intertwined. Um, I'm going to move ahead a little bit. The second major concept that we can bring as Marxists to this question is Trotsky's uneven and combined development. Right, this is an absolutely uh, profound idea. It's actually, in some ways, you could say, a bit of a challenge uh, to, to even Marx when he says things like in Capital, the country that is more developed industrially only shows to the less developed the image of its own future. People can debate that, but I'm putting that as actually a little bit of a challenge to Marx as well. And what Trotsky says, I'm going to give you the quote, and I'm going to use the language he uses of backward and advance and this and that. I think it's problematic, but I'm going to give you the quote as it is. A backward country assimilates the material and intellectual conquests of advanced countries but this does not mean it follows them slavishly, reproducing all the stages of their past. Uh, under capitalism, a repetition of forms of development by different nations is ruled out. Although compelled to follow after the advanced countries, a backward country, meaning latecomer to capitalism, does not take things in the same order. The privilege of historic backwardness permits, or rather compels, the adoption of whatever is ready in advance of any specific date, skipping in a whole series of intermediate stages. Again, I'm using his language. Savages throw away their bows and arrows for rifles all at once without traveling the road which lay between those two weapons in the past. Right? So what he's trying to say, all right, look, whenever we used to call India when I was growing up, Half my family wouldn't have landlines. So you have to call the neighbor. The neighbor will yell, they'll come over and we'll talk, right? Now everyone has a mobile phone. They never had to go through the stage of having landlines. <laughs> they went immediately to mobile phones, right? Every domestic worker in, in India has a mobile phone. Every person who's grazing sheep and goat has a mobile phone and jeans and you know, because they have more advanced technology, they get the, 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 the sim, they get Netflix shows on the SIM card, right? They go to the local place, get the, that week's Netflix shows and watch, you know, the Avengers on their phone while the goats are going on. <laughs> what combined and uneven development says 
is not that part of that person is in feudalism <laughs> or something, pre-capital, and part of it is in capitalism. What combined uneven development says is that there's a great degree of unevenness because of coming late to capitalism. But that's what capitalism looks like in that place. It's not half, half feudal, half tributary. Half, it's combined because we're all in one world. The Mercedes is going down the highway with the bullock cart, right? You people have seen this, right? But that bullock cart has good tires on it too now, <laughs> often, right? So there's all kinds of, these are just examples, right? But the what, what uneven and combined development does is rather than us forcing certain abstract theories onto society, and be like, is this, is this feudal? Is this tributary? Is this cap? To actually take complexity as we see it and help explain that complexity. So this idea of um, differentiation in the world, so we can't have any universal idea of capitalism, actually, we have both. We can talk about capitalism as a mode of production that dominates everything, but we can also explain how it creates heterogeneity and creates difference, and that difference exists anywhere, rather than ignoring all of the complex features of history and of culture and of any given society at the same time. So that's why this is extremely uh, important. It applied to Trotsky's own understanding in his time of when the theory emerged, the 1905 Russian Revolution, and why is it that workers have, in that revolution, which failed, but created some reforms in terms of the parliament, why is it that the working class in a country like Russia that's dominated by peasants, right, that's still a predominantly agricultural society, what's the role of the working class in that society? What, does, what should socialists do in Russia? Should they sit around and wait? Because revolution has to come in, you know, <laughs> the centers of, of capital first, and then just wait and say, wait, stop now. We can only have a bourgeois revolution. I know you're angry, but Marx said, you know, <laughs> right? So, like, he's thinking through, right? The fact that it's the working class organized in Soviets making a revolution that's actually pushing for bourgeois reforms while the bourgeoisie doesn't want anything to do with revolution. It's happy to just make its money, work with the czar, do whatever it wants, right? And so Trotsky's thinking through these things, and, and by 1930, in the history of the Russian Revolution, he really um, goes into this. And what this does, besides the complexity of capitalism, it also starts talking about how on a global scale, the, the power of the working class in a country like Russia, I would say in a country, um, in a non-Western country, is actually huge. In, in the age of capitalism looking at internationally, and a fight for socialism can begin anywhere. It's not simply a Eurocentric model in which the, 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 you know, Europe has to have a revolution and then we wait, right? And we can only have national liberation. No, the fight for socialism can begin anywhere because it's a world system. Every country doesn't have to go through the same phases as every other country did. However, the fight for socialism can't end in one country. You can't have it in one country because you don't have the productive forces to actually sustain yourself and also fight, fight off all the other countries that are coming come after you, right? You actually need revolutions everywhere. And this theory actually helps predict what happens in Russia with the defeat of the German Revolution and the ultimate defeat um, of, all right, so I went into that too much. Um, but what I'm trying to do really, I'm going into other topics because I, I think all of these relate with colonialism and this framework 
helps us outside of that Eurocentric, I think, bind that happens in a stages mode of production idea. Now, I'll give you two other concepts. Um, imperialism and the, the rights of oppressed nations to self-determination, right? The difference between the nationalism of the oppressor and the nationalism of the oppressed. So these two concepts are crucial. Lenin, Luxembourg, Clara Zetkin, Bukharin, different people are coming up with this, um, with this theory first of imperialism. These two are intertwined. As Lenin argues in Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, the rapacious needs of capital organize into nations, push it far beyond national borders to seek markets, resources, and labor, and this placing different national capitals in direct conflict with others. Um, a team of bandits that sometimes comes together strategically and sometimes backstab each other and some, sometimes go to war. So mass production pushed the demand for raw materials and markets. Mass production pushed the explosion in technology and intensified ext extraction of raw materials and crops from the earth and from the mines. Mass production allowed the proliferation of weapons for defense and further conquest. And so World War I was a manifestation of this fight. As Lenin said, a war between slaveholders to gain more slaves, right? So they're, they're examining this phenomenon called imperialism and saying it's, it's a necessary feature of capitalism. This, this is tied to it uh, you know, completely. Now this is coming out of observing what's happening in the late 19th century. In terms of empires, they're all consolidating. Um, they're going from trading partners with colonies to turning places like India into suppliers of raw materials. I, I want to really go into the history, but I can't. But when you think about how the end of the Civil War and the end of the cotton from the South actually leads to the hyper-production of cotton from India, and this kind of global history is really important. I had tried to shove it into this talk, but it didn't work. Um, but all of these things are happening. Empires are consolidating. Um, colonies are turned into sources for raw materials. Railways and communications are being established in order to move the goods around faster, uh, in order to move the military around faster to suppress rebellions. There's deindustrialization of places like Egypt in the 1850s who are trying to somehow import. You know, so this, this story of capitalism is highly complex. There are other places with markets. There are other places with trade and commerce. And an emergence of capitalism is possible. Historians debate about this. But the emergence of capital is possible everywhere. But one of the things about, about British colonialism is that it's able to completely monopolize and crush any emerging capitalism um, that's happening anywhere. Right? So we see that in Egypt in the 1850s, um, and then 1884 and the scramble for Africa. Right? Um, that happens in this period of the, the, the mid to late 19th century. So this is what Lenin, Luxembourg, Zetkin, and others are talking about and come with the conclusion that socialists have to oppose World War I. Right? Socialists have nothing, uh, have, have no stake in this battle between slaveholders, which is the right side. We have no stake in this. But, but to this, I'm telling you the best ideas in Marxism. But in order to get there, it wasn't written in a book somewhere. They had to actually <laughs> combat, defeat, and even split with other socialists and Marxists who had developed backward ideas. And, and, and this is key, because this is part of the legacy and the tradition that we come out of. If it's not anti-imperialism, it's not Marxism. That's where we come out of. And so in 1907 in Stuttgart, the Second International comes together. These stories are wild. The Second International comes together, and its commission on colonialism, it tells the Congress, 
not to reject in principle every colonial policy because colonialism might be a force for civilization. This is quoting John Riddle. Defenders of this resolution claim that Europe needed colonial positions for prosperity. When German Marxist Karl, Karl Kautsky, and this is supposed to be the good guy, proposed that the backward people be approached in a friendly manner with an offer of tools and assistance, he was mocked by Netherlands delegate Hendrik van Kohl speaking for the commission majority saying, they will kill us or even eat us. Therefore, we must go there with weapons in hand, even if Kautsky calls that imperialism. Think about the crap. <laughs> Lenin, Luxembourg, they, they debate this. They finally win an anti-war resolution, but it's only 127 to 108, and Lenin says, we've got a problem. We've got a problem. This explodes completely when World War I finally comes, and these cowards find a loophole and say, well, this is a defensive war, and they support Germany, uh, and they support their own bourgeois governments in the war. The same fight in 1907 happens around immigration, with US socialists saying, we should be for the ban of Japanese and Asian immigrants to the West Coast, right? And a Japanese comrade at the, at the thing says, clearly they're influenced by the so-called yellow peril, right? But anyway, this is the kind of thing that's going on. So finally, when World War I happens and the Second International Folk back their own capitalist government, They've had enough, right? And, and Lenin, and that's where the Third International forms. And what Lenin says in that pamphlet, Socialism and War, um, probably um, has made me a Leninist uh, before anything. And he says, if tomorrow Morocco were to declare war on France, India on England, Persia or China on Russia, and so forth, those would be just defensive wars, irrespective of who attacked first. And every socialist would sympathize with the victory of the oppressed, dependent, unequal states against the oppressing, slave-owning, predatory great powers. I'm just going to quote Lenin here. Socialists cannot achieve their great aim without fighting all oppression of nations. Therefore, they must without fail demand that the social democratic parties of oppressing countries, especially of the so-called great powers, should recognize and champion the right of oppressed nations to self-determination. Precisely in the political sense of the term, i.e. The, the right to political secession, the socialist of a ruling or colony-owning nation who fails to champion this right is not a socialist but a chauvinist. Right? He, he goes on, quoting from Marx and Engels, no nation can be free if it oppresses another nation. And then Lenin says, a proletariat that tolerates the slightest violence by its nation against other nations cannot be a socialist proletariat. All right, so this is, this is pretty clear. Um, I won't go into the other stuff. There's a great article. Uh, the discussion of self-determination summed up is, the title is bad, but the article's fantastic, where he defends the Irish uprising of 1916. Um, and, 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 and actually quotes Marx on Ireland in that, and then, and then again uh, starts developing this idea again of why internationalists oppose imperialism, oppose the nationalism of the imperialist countries, but actually defend the rights of self-determination and defend the rights of, of the nationalism of the oppressed. Now, um, just a side note. One reason why we support anti-colonial nationalism is because historically it also opened the door for lots of other oppressed groups to express their own uh, desire for freedom. Um, you see many feminist movements in the colonized world emerge around the anti-colonial nationalism. You see many workers' movements articulate themselves and their demands in terms of anti-colonial nationalism. So it's not simply about 
you know, a theory. It's about on the ground, this actually becomes a vehicle for expressing a tremendous amount of class anger. Now, in the common turn period, after the Bolshevik Revolution, you get the height of Bolshevik theories on imperialism and practices on, on fighting imperialism and supporting nationalism. Because with the common turn, anti-colonial revolutionaries themselves are part of shaping the theory and the practice. Uh, last year I gave a talk on MN Roy and Lenin, and the way in which um, Roy's participation uh, in that discussion actually helped sharpen the overall argument. I won't go through that whole discussion, but the short version is this. Gandhi's first mass civil disobedience was going on at the same time as the Comintern meeting was going on in 1920. And Lenin was arguing that socialists need to defend the bourgeois democratic liberation movements in the colony. And Roy said, no, revolutionary liberation movements. Because some of those anti-colonial movements are backwards. Some of those anti-colonial movements are reactionary. And so without going into the debate further, because there are different sides and complexities here. But the point being, it's always a critical defense of anti-colonial nationalism. Because anti-colonial nationalism is still a cross-class alliance. It brings in many different class interests into the fold. And some of those class interests actually want to take things to what? Capitalism with brown and black faces, not white faces. Right? That's all they want to go. And socialists actually have to unite around the, the working class and um, maintain political independence around that. And so that period of the common turn actually becomes a discussion of what kind of support for national liberation. But the flowering of, of ideas and interchanges and discussions that's happening at that time really needs to be known. They discuss things like how Marxists ought to relate to nationalism, pan-Islamism, and other political and ideological uh, formations. Um, they have many different um, many different um, forums, including the Second Congress of the Comintern, the First Congress of the Peoples of the East in Baku, drawing close to 2,000 participants, representing 25 Asian peoples, the Fourth Congress of the Comintern, etc. Uh, in the Fourth Congress, for example, the breadth and depth of the discussion is shown by the adoption of Comintern resolutions on black liberation after speeches by US black radicals like Claude McKay. The questioning of the Comintern's critique of pan-Islamism by Indonesian communist Tan Malaka, and the common turn censuring of Europeans in the British and French colonies who were trying to set up segregated communist organizations. And the common turn said, any attempt to build communist organizations on ethnic lines contradicts the principle of proletarian internationalism and disbands those organizations, right? Like the French communists in Algeria trying to have French only, white only, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, <laughs> you know, so, thanks. So, the common term position is this. A determined fight is necessary against the attempt to put, this is a, a, from a resolution in 1920. A determined fight is necessary against the attempt to put a communist cloak around revolutionary liberation movements that are not really communist in the colonized countries. The communist, there's a direct quote, the communist international should accompany the revolutionary movement in the colonies for part of the way, should even make an alliance with it. It may not, however, fuse with it, but must unconditionally maintain the independent character of the proletarian movement, be it only an embryo. Exactly. Right, you got the point, you got the point? It's a very precise thing. We support them 
part of the way we don't fuse with it because we're always linked around the revolutionary proletariat. Because nationalism, even the nationalism of the oppressed, is not the same as a fight for working class self-emancipation, right? Now, I want to say, oh man, all right, I'll just have to say this quickly. The colonized were not waiting just for edicts from Moscow. And when we look at what they were doing and what they were coming up with, you see the similarities which are amazing. I'm just going to tell you without quotes some stuff that the Gadar Party did in San Francisco. So Gadar Party is formed in 1913. It's a revolutionary nationalist group of Indian students and Indian workers, uh, farm workers, railroad workers, etc., on the West Coast. And they come together, and Gadar means uh, the revolt, which refers to 1857. We need another mutant. And they were mostly Punjabis. And Punjabis had helped suppress the 1857 mutiny. So in their first document, they say, our grandparents betrayed the nation. <laughs> we have a duty. Punjabis became the martial race, the, the good people in the army. We have to get our Punjabi brethren to mutiny again. All right? So I'm going through their Punjabi uh, newspapers from 1913, being like, wow, it's from 1913, right? Um, but I can't read Punjabi. But I'm, taking, but I'm taking pictures in case I will one day because it's so historic. And then around Easter 1916 and after, all of a sudden white people start showing up. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what? And I look closely and they're all Irish martyrs from 1916. And then when I went to the British Museum and I looked at the intelligence reports, they had translated all that Punjabi stuff, so I didn't have to find a Punjabi reader. The British intelligence translated everything for me. And it's all about, look at the heroic Irish. We need this in India, around 1916. The same event that sparked Lenin in his writings about national right, self-determination. It gets better. In 1919, Eamon de Valera, one of the leaders of the Irish, he's visiting the US. They invite him to San Francisco. They present him with a flag and a symbolic sword and things like that. And there, they thank Irish labor unions because Irish labor unions passed a resolution saying, we will not let the American government deport Indian revolutionaries back to British India. I have to give you the quote. The sons of Irish liberty. And this is a time of intense white anti-Asian racism in the West Coast. But this history is also there. And it's through nationalism in an internationalist perspective. The Sons of Irish Liberty in their California State Convention unanimously pass a resolution saying, the, quote, the people of India, like the people of Ireland, have been compelled by intolerable conditions, both economic and political, to challenge the right of Great Britain in preventing India by armed force from asserting her right to national self-government. Right? That's why they're gonna stop deportation. This is relevant today. The Gother Party also sends messages to Indian soldiers in China during the Chinese Revolution in 1925. And they say to them, they scold them, the good Chinese who love their country are fighting for the freedom of their own country. If you are not prepared to bear some sacrifice in fighting for the freedom of your own country, 
Why do you go to another country to die like dogs? Why do you go from country to country? This to the Indian soldiers. Because the, the, the British Indian Army was crucial in conquering a lot of the places. Why do you go from country to country to sacrifice yourselves? Save yourselves from the English tyrants. They write to the, the Chinese more formally. <laughs> we wish to send a message of deep sympathy to your national liberation movement. Our party wishes the people of China to know that India is with China heart and soul. Check this out. We urge upon all the Hindustanis in China to cooperate with the nationalist forces of China. We consider any Hindu a traitor to India if he fires up on the Chinese on behalf of British imperialism. If you support British imperialism in fighting Chinese nationalism, you're not a proper Indian nationalist. Right? So what kind of nationalism is this? It's based on your internationalist politics. Your nationalist credentials are based on your ability to be an internationalist. Because we, China and India have a common enemy. So these are the kind of political, this is just one example. Sixto Lopez, uh, 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 a Filipino nationalist was fighting the Spanish and then fighting the US and his work with the American Anti-Imperialist uh, League. He's all talking about the white man's burden. This is just about profit. This is just about the vampire and the wolf. Unless it brings 50 to 100% profit to the white man, it's not gonna, they're not gonna do any philanthropy or whatnot, right? These ideas are prevalent. The connection between colonialism and capitalism and profit, this is happening in lots of different places. The Bolsheviks are able to crystallize it and connect it with this idea of world revolution at that time. But unfortunately, that's something that doesn't last. And that same Chinese revolution becomes the sign of the things that are to come. Because by that time, the counter-revolutions happened in Russia. So, uh, Stalin's put forward the idea of socialism in one country, right? That, that's actually a legitimate socialism. And in terms of how that relates to the world, supporting nation states who are friendly to the Soviet Union becomes more important than supporting their working classes and supporting their peasantry. So rather than an internationalism based on class solidarity, it becomes a nationalist um, alliance with different ruling classes at different times, right? And so the entire, entire idea, we still have the language of national self-determination. Now this is the opposite of the Eurocentrism argument. The Marxism as Eurocentrism is one side. The other side is Marxism, Marxism is not sufficiently critical of nationalism. That comes from the Stalinist legacy. Because national liberation becomes equated with some kind of socialism. This is still stagism. This, it's actually two sides of the same coin. It's still stagism. It's the idea that in the colonies, like in South Africa, right, you can only have a bourgeois, national, bourgeois nationalism. You can't have a fight for socialism. So you see South African Communist Party working with the ANC in heroic ways. Let's, let's not, you know, people are going to jail, people are dying, people are sacrificing themselves. That bond is built with a, a real connection around a fight for the end of apartheid, right? For national liberation. But constantly, the slogan is, this can only be, remember what I said about Russia? This can only be a bourgeois revolution. And so then what do you get last 20 years? You get an acceptance by the South African Communist Party and the ANC of neoliberalism, right. right? And all that the South African state is now doing, right, in, in that. So the consequences of this, of this question around national liberation are very dire. And Marxism is actually stuck, has been labeled with both. 
the Eurocentrism on one hand and not being critical enough of nationalism on the other. Our tradition comes from somewhere different, right? And it's the things I said about the common turn, about the critical defense of self-determination, etc. Um, I'm going to end with, um, time to end, right? One more minute, okay. Oh, I can stretch, I can stretch that. Five more minutes. I'm just, I'm just going to end with uh, two quotations, just in conclusion. One is, again, um, to, I'm quoting um, Discourse on Colonialism by Césaire. Again, his relationship to Marxism is, is complicated, but you can see the effect of those ideas. I mean, at the end of the day, the vast majority of people affiliating with socialism, communism, Marxism in the world are black and brown. If you look at the history of the world and the history of these struggles. In the US, we've lost that link since the late 60s and the Black Panther Party and the crushing of it by the state, right? And, and we have to rebuild some of those links. But with Césaire, you hear, you hear the, the influence of, of Marxism and the understanding. He says, colonialism equals thingification. Right? Colonialism equals thingification. I hear the storm. They talk to me about progress, about achievements, diseases cured, improved standards of living. I'm talking about societies drained of their essence, cultures trampled underfoot, institutions undermined, lands confiscated, religions smashed, magnificent artistic creations destroyed, extraordinary possibilities wiped out. They throw facts at my head. This is 1955. They throw facts at my head, statistics, mileages of roads, canals, and railroad tracks. I'm talking about the thousands of men sacrificed to the Congo Ocean Railway. I'm talking about those who, as I write this, are digging the harbor of Abidjan by hand. I'm talking about millions of men torn from their gods, their land, their habits, their life from, from the dance, from wisdom, etc. That's the language in which he speaks. Césaire says very clearly, Europe, uh, he says, Europe is indefensible. It's failed the colonize and it's failed its proletariat. Right? It's, it's very clear in him. And then finally, I'm going to end with Du Bois, who in Black Reconstruction gives the same language that Marx gives around the originary accumulation. He says, capitalism is spawning the world's raw material and luxury, cotton, wool, coffee, tea, cocoa, palm oil, fiber, spices, rubber, silk, lumber, copper, gold, diamonds, leather. All these are gathered up at prices lowest of the low, manufactured, transformed, and transported at fabulous gain. And the resultant wealth is distributed and displayed and made the basis of world power. Out of the exploitation of the dark proletariat comes surplus value, filched from human beasts. The emancipation of human beings is the emancipation of labor. And the emancipation of labor is the freeing of that basic majority of workers who are Asian, he says yellow, yellow, brown, and black. Right? The emancipation of human beings is the emancipation of labor. And the emancipation of labor is the majority of workers who are yellow, brown, and black. Workers of the world unite, that means that. Workers of the world unite. Yes. We have nothing to lose but our chains. We have a world to win.
The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.